As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Now, No Opportunity Wasted. I'm your host, Angelica Ross. Today, we have a very important conversation with one of the co-directors of the documentary film, Israelism, Aaron Axelman. And if anyone that is listening is close to Tiffany Haddish, please kindly share this episode with her. I saw that Tiffany took the social media and saying that she was flying to Israel to see for herself and to find a husband. Sweetie, not there not in Israel, not going along with that foolishness. So I'm not going to waste any time dragging Tiffany, but ultimately we need to recognize that Tiffany is still a black Jewish person who needs to discover the truth about Israel's occupation and genocide on the people of Gaza for herself. But instead of flying to Israel, girl, all you had to do was press play on this life-changing documentary, Israelism. It has forever changed and altered my understanding of this conflict between Palestine and Israel to realize it's not complicated, it's corrupt, as my friend Marianne Williamson would say. And today's quote from Buddhism, day by day, couldn't be any more timely. Quote, no discrimination exists in Nichiren Buddhism. Nichiren teaches that the Buddha and all people are absolutely equal. Chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo with faith in this point is a matter of the utmost importance. Doing so is to embrace the Lotus Sutra. It is also an act of succeeding to the heritage of Buddhism. In this light, we can say that the gist of the teaching of the Lotus Sutra is that all people are equal. All right, welcome back to now. I am sitting now with an incredible person who is doing incredible things. Uh, welcome to now, Aaron Axelman. Welcome. Hey, thank you for being here. Again, you're doing amazing things. It's 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 really cool to get to talk with you. Thank you so much, but I have to say uh I am known. I am someone who is known to shake the table. But when I tell you that Israeliism, the film, that is how you shake the table, ladies and gentlemen. Uh whenever you get a chance to see this film, run, do not walk run to go see this film when we talk about seeing films and wanting to leave the theater changed forever changed this absolutely 1000 percent is it i have so many comments so many questions so many things um i think i guess i'll start with the fact that like with this film, you are about to go. So you are uh, one of the co-directors, am I correct, and co-producers? Yes. yes. So but uh, how did this, 
how did this even come about? Just let's let's even just start there. How did this project come about? Yeah, it took us took us a long time. It took us took us seven years to make. Um, so we started in 2016, and it's very roughly based off my own story. Uh, not exactly. It's more closely based off the stories of, of many of my closest friends, but certainly my own story as well. Uh, I grew up in a tiny town in rural Maine. Uh, so my parents, my, my mom, I was telling you, my mom is from Wisconsin. My dad's from Philadelphia. Um, and But they were kind of hippies and they wanted to live in the middle of the woods. So they uh, they, they brought me to, uh, to rural Maine. And I was one of the few Jewish kids in my high school. Um, and I also real, began, real, I realized that I was queer um, when I was 15. I, I fought it for a very long time. Of course. Um, I, I, we, I didn't accept we, it. As we usually do when yep. we first find yep. those things out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but but as a young person, you know, I was I, I didn't it was very difficult for me to form an, a positive identity because, you know, I was made fun of for being Jewish. Um, you know, I experienced I, I grew up in like Trump country. Um, so it was like there was like it was like 20 percent hippies, which was great. And then like 80 percent, you know, Trump Trump folks. And that was the dominant culture in my public high school. And wow. so, you know, both being one of the few Jewish kids and then also realizing at a, at a very young age that I was queer. Um, I, I, you know, I, I later came out as, as bi and trans and stuff. It took me you know, a very long time. It was very hard for me to kind of find a positive identity. Um, and, you know, it was interesting for my bar, bar mitzvah, I was given a bunch of very pro-Israel novels. Um, and, you know, I went to Hebrew school as, as a young person, but my our rabbi actually didn't talk about Israel that much. He was he was like in his 70s or 80s uh, when he was teaching me. And so he was born well before the state of Israel was created. And he was a Zionist. You know, he, he talked about it, like, but very infrequently to him, Judaism was just Judaism. It was the Torah. Israel was something else. But the important thing to talk about was Judaism from his perspective. Um, and so Israel wasn't a huge part of my life. But then for my bar bar mitzvah, I was given all these novels, pro-Israel novels. And as someone who really had never formulated a really positive Jewish identity, again, it made me feel different. It made me feel embarrassed to a certain extent because people made fun of me. Um, I read about these stories of Israel and I was like, oh my God, this is what it means to be a Jewish person. Like, so I, you know, it, it was the story that's presented to us, the kind of traditional pro-Israel narrative. It makes Israel seem absolutely incredible. Right. Mm -hmm. It basically is, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's the, the light at the end of the tunnel after millennia and centuries of anti-Semitism. My family fled violent anti-Semitism around 100 years ago in Eastern Europe. Israel is seen as, you know, the saving grace. It's finally, after all this oppression, we finally have our own state and we finally have redefined ourselves and created this brand new Jewish identity. Uh, and, and we're returning to our homeland. Right? That's the, it's the narrative that's given to you. And so it's an amazing narrative, especially as a young person. It's like, oh my God, I can be part of this. I can be part of this, this rebirth um, of the Jewish people. And I can be part of kind of creating, you know, and being part of this amazing renewal. And so for a couple of years in high school, I became an ardent you know, Zionist, as, as pro-Israel as you can get. Um, I began wearing a Star of David necklace around my neck. It became my way of connecting to Judaism. It really became my way of feeling like I was part of a community. Because I wasn't part of a big Jewish community, it made me feel connected. Absolutely. Um, and then... Yeah. And then uh, my senior year of high school, you could do it at my random public high school in rural Maine. You could do an independent study. Um, and I had this truly amazing teacher. The film is partly dedicated to. Um, and I was going to do an independent study on the history of Israel. And you made a documentary at the end of it. I've been doing documentary stuff as an amateur for a very long time. And I was going to so do one of the history. So you're saying that was a part of one of the assignments at the end of it was to make sort of a documentary? Exactly. And so the goal going into the independent study was to make obviously a very pro-Israel documentary about the history of Israel. And, but pretty early on, and he knew, that, you know, he, he knew I was a really left-wing person. And at one point, you know, early on, he was kind of confused that I was so pro-Israel because he knew I was a really progressive person. And he was neither Jewish or Palestinian. So at one point early in the year, you know, he asked me, he said, you know, do you know anything about Palestinian history? 
And mm. now wait, I said, so no. Who was this that asked you this? It was just my, this truly amazing teacher I had. In, so this uh, in was my, the teacher of your independent study. Yeah. My public high school, random public, public high, high school. school. And he changed okay. my life, changed wow. my life in profound ways because I said no, because the narratives that we read never talk about Palestinians. Um, they mention Arabs, if anything, and they only talk about Palestinians as an obstacle to the dreams of the Zionist movement or, or to the Israeli state, and never as a full-fledged people who have their own rich history and civilization. And so I said, no, I don't know anything about Palestinian history. So over this course this year, he gave me all these amazing history books, both by Palestinian authors as well as uh, left-wing Israeli authors that talk openly about the Nakba and the occupation. And it made me realize that I'd fallen in love with a one-dimensional story, with a story that was not the whole not was not everything right and it, the, the how we learn about israel is very similar to how we learn about america in public schools and that we learn about america as this amazing you know brand new country formed from refugees one of the first democracies of the modern world but that there's no room for native americans in that narrative and similarly there's no room for palestinians in the traditional pro-israel narrative so i became right. fascinated by why i'd fallen in love with that narrative that was so that's so obviously erased the Palestinians. Um, and when I got to college, I met so many young people. So I began to change in high school. Um, and I, I began to realize that I had not been told the full story and that I, that I was missing a huge part of this narrative. And when I got to college, I saw so many young people who were like the main characters in our film, who had gone to Jewish day school, who had, had a much more intense pro-Israel education than I had, and who really thought that they were doing a good thing, um, being the best Jewish versions of them that they could be by defending Israel but they'd never met Palestinians. And I saw what happened over and over and over again when young Jewish um, students met Palestinians. And to their credit, I saw that they listened. And I began to see almost all the pro-Israel leaders on my campus uh, begin doing work for pro-Palestinian human rights. I think for those who are listening, so many of us were not involved in sort of the conversation of this at all because what was fed to us was it's complicated. Yeah. And so to for our listeners, uh, one thing I want to do right now in this space as well and, and, and during this time is take the opportunity to make it a little less complicated. And um, so to start with it, I think what that starts with is education and people, because one thing that I love about watching this film is what's really, really clear is that this is a very clear example of once you know, you can't unknow. Yep. Once you see, you can't unsee. So can you, for the listeners, uh, tell us what is the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? Because right now in the United States, we are having, uh, we're seeing legislation being brought up across even here in Georgia where they're trying to conflate anti-semitism and anti-zionism can you explain for folks the difference absolutely yeah so you know zionism is a political movement that was created in the mid 1800s um and it was basically you know there was this problem that jewish people had in europe where we began to realize that europe was not going to be a safe place to survive for jewish people and the holocaust obviously proved that very right um, and so people began thinking about, you know, because of violent anti-Semitism, hatred towards Jewish people in Europe, we have to figure out something needs to change. We need to figure out some way to be safe. 
And so there's a variety of ideas about how to create Jewish safety. Most people actually just came to the U.S. Um, the great majority of Jews for most of, um, you know, most of the time, most of, you know, the first, you know, actually, yeah. So from like the beginnings of Zionism until, you know, the 1920s or so, almost all Jews um, who realized they needed to get out of Europe came to the U.S. In the 1920s, the U.S. basically closed their doors to Jewish immigration. Um, because of a, a series of, of, of racist immigration laws. And so people began realizing that, you know, how do we create Jewish safety if we can't basically get to the U.S. or Canada? And one of those ideas was Zionism, the idea that, and this was kind of around the time when nationalism was kind of becoming, you know, a mainstream political idea, the idea that there's peoples and that those people should have their own country, right? And there's many flaws with nationalism. There's many flaws with the idea of nationalism. Um, but, you know, if you think of it that way, it kind of makes sense initially, right? The problem, and so many Jewish people began saying, okay, the only way we're going to be safe is if we create our own country. But the tragedy is that the, you know, we Jews are a diasporic people. We are scattered across the world. And that's not our fault. We didn't cause that. The Romans- Listen, as black people, I understand, <laughs> exactly. honey. We are a diaspora exactly. as well. Yeah, so go, yeah, exactly. continue. Exactly, exactly. And so, so if we wanted to create our own country, it was essentially going to have to be where other people lived, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so and the Zionist movement, some people, you know, the basis was, you know, Jews need to create their own state. And it became very clear pretty quickly that most people wanted that state to be in the land of Palestine. And the reasons for that were religious reasons, our, our religions based there. And again, we did live there, whether we originated there or lived there. It's a complex question. Indigeneity is, is a complex question, but we did live there, but we were scattered by the Romans and other people have lived there for the past 2000 years. And there's always been other people in that land, even if you take the Bible literally, which I don't. Even the Bible says there was other people who lived there. We were mm -hmm. not the only people who lived there. But the most important thing is that we had not lived there primarily for the past 2,000 years. There's always been some Jews there, but we were a very small proportion of the population. And so all of a sudden, these European Jews, because they wanted safety, decided that they were going to create their own state, but in that land. And if they were going to do that, they were basically going to have to make those indigenous people who lived there either second-class citizens or expel them. And that's essentially what happened. Both those things happened, is that the Zionist movement began, again, moving people to that land with the idea not of living amongst those people, but taking it over for their own state. And so that's Zionism. And again, Zionism, it was one idea, one kind of you know, solution to the problem of how do you create Jewish safety. But there's always been deep critiques of Zionism. Zionism from my perspective, is a flawed ideology. Again, there's- I mean, to me, it's it. just, it's basically colonization. I, yes. You know, when we, for me, like when I'm thinking about the Native Americans, I'm thinking about, you know, in the United States, how the Native Americans pretty much lost out in the fight because they didn't have a concept of land ownership. Not even the concept of it, because it's like we lit, we have a relationship to the land, you know, and, and it's we give to the land and the land gives back to us and those sort of things. Uh to how does it ha like do you i guess my question is how would how does it happen how do you think does it happen to say to, to say okay israel has to create its own state fresh off of you know escaping out of this oppression and the holocaust and all these things i'm wondering where the impetus where the where the sort of impulse comes from to 
or do, I guess you don't see it as becoming the oppressor. I guess they they don't see it in the moment as becoming the oppressor. Yeah, and that's that's what's so tragic about this is that again, and you know, and again, you know, Israel is a settler colony, like it is a colonial state. The difference is that it, what makes it so tragic is that they were also refugees, right? They were both Correct. colonists and refugees, and you can be both. You can tra- you know, you can be both. And again, oppressed people can become oppressors pretty quickly. Um, you know, we're not the only people who who, who that's happened to. Um, but I think you know some of you know, and again, there there were some Zionists and there were some people who wanted to live in that land and coexist with the Palestinian people. And again, I have no issue with Jewish people living in that land with coexisting. The issue is that many people wanted to create essentially a Jewish-only state or a state that privileged the rights of Jews over everybody else. That's obviously problematic in general, but also because we weren't living there, right? Right. And again, correct. it's not our fault, but we weren't living. Well, there. I mean, and you talk about that, uh, you know. Because again, one thing that is extremely hard for me, and when I was watching the film, uh, I had so many aha moments. Uh, there was an aha moment that I had when there was a clip that you show of both Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden talking about the United States relationship to Israel and how it forever will be like this. I have learned a lot and I have learned a lot that I didn't know that our history uh, classes, things like that did not tell us. It is very hard for me to believe that Barack Barack Obama, that Biden, that Kamala Harris, that a lot of these folks are not aware of the events that took place before October 7th. But they all keep going back to October 7th. The fact that we, you know, I'm just learning about things like the Nakba in 1948 and, you know, the first sort of genocide and pushing of, P- of Palestine people out of their homes and like hearing actual stories from Palestine families who are not that far removed because it ain't that long ago for some of them who were talking about how they thought maybe they, they might have would have had an opportunity to return to their homes. And so when you look at the history of all of this, you see that this was never about Hamas. This was never about October 7th. This was like a continual plan. And and I feel like Netanyahu has continued to reveal that this was always the plan and not even being concerned for the safety of the hostages as they uh, employ their sort of military strategy that how could you possibly be concerned about uh, hostages? Not only that, but a lot of news story and information comes up that a lot of the casualties to some of the hostages and Israeli folks have come from Israeli soldiers. When when I looked at this and I thought to myself, well, how does something like this happen? And just hear, hear heard yourself talk about sort of your up, upbringing and seeing Israel as a sort of solution to safety and to having a safe space. And I, I this kind of uh, term of summer camp kind of came up, you know. Um, and as I looked at these summer camps, I kind of almost looked at, this is not and very much not an isolated situation where I look at like evangelical churches. Very similar. Very and similar. how they indoctrinate folks into yeah. believing the narrative that they have created about things. But then to see in these summer camps, the kids don military uniforms and sort of be conditioned from a very young age to see things 
in a sort of way and to also glamorize. Like I, I want to say I, when I first was seeing sort of videos on TikTok and different things of Israeli soldiers, I, cause you don't I don't know what to believe half the time when you see videos on the internet, if something's like a deep fake, if it's AI, whatever, but I just kept seeing really attractive looking, uh, Israeli soldiers creating content. And, and then when I saw your film, I saw that it was kind of a part of the process of being like a rock star, like a, yeah. almost a celebrity if you're in the Israeli military. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of young, you know, a lot of American Jews, we really glamorize the Israeli military. We really, you know, look up to the Israeli military. And I think part of that is that, you know, we Jewish people, you know, were oppressed for so long um, and we were victimized for so long. And there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of guilt about that, about that we should have fought back or we should have defended ourselves. We couldn't have. There's nothing we could have done about about the about the Holocaust. But well, I think like one the, like there weren't moments when there was a resistance. It's just like with slavery and many people, moments. people tried to say that there, we didn't have. So, there were so many times when we tried to exactly. fight back, but it exactly. was what it was, and we were oppressed for a very long time. And we were, and exactly. you know, it, we have a lot of feelings that we're still healing from around. Exactly. That. No, and I think you know we 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 have we face such you know, just unspeakable oppression that there's this impetus, this feeling that we, we need to be strong. We need to be strong. We need to have power. Um, and we need to, you know, become the own writers of our destiny to a certain extent and how that's played. And again, that's understandable. Like I, I understand Very, where that comes from yeah. totally, but, but tragically, you know, the Palestinians are not responsible for our oppression. The Palestinians did not oppress us. It was Europeans that oppressed us. Um, but we ended up essentially, you know, the people who ended up having to deal with our trauma and who we traumatized were another group of people, were the Palestinians. Now, now can I, let me, let me uh, connect a few dots here. Um, because, so am I, I'm, am I correct to believe like that the Holocaust and all of that was really at the center of all of that was white supremacy, um, yes. was the fact that Jews weren't, or weren't seen to be, nowhere near the yes. level of what they consider to be uh, white. white and supreme and yep. worth respect and value and all of these different things. And so can we, can you talk to tell the folks as well? Uh, what, what is pink washing? Yeah. Yeah. Pink washing is basically, you know, the, so Israel basically tries to make it seem like it's a kind of beacon for queer rights. And it's this like amazing place to live if you're queer. And again, it is better than some places in the world. Just um, like here in America, rights, but we can't pretend like, like they're not trying exactly. to kill us every day by exactly. Uh, exactly. systemic violence. Yes. Yeah. And it it's worse in Israel by a significant amount because there's no gay marriage in Israel. Um, you know, there's there's no even interracial marriage. If you if you if you if you're a Jewish person, you want to marry a Muslim person. There's actually you have to basically go leave the country, get a marriage license, and come back. Um, marriage is overseen by um, something called the chief rabbinate, but it's basically it, it's it's a religious part of the government. So Israel again has some very very disturbing policies when it comes to basic rights. Uh, for queer people and for for non-Jewish people, um, but Israel has kind of tried to make it seem like it's this just perfect place for queer rights, um, and basically being like, well, support us because we support queer people. Um, and again, it is true that it, that you can live a 
life as a queer person in Israel better than some parts of the world. But to make it seem like it's great is not true at all. Again, there's literally no gay marriage. And the reason, are why, oppressed. the reason why I even bring that up and to want to kind of connect that dot is to talk about, again, white supremacy and bring this back to white supremacy. And what I think for our listeners to understand that a lot of this uh, to understand that white people and people who are white passing Caucasian of descent, all of the different things are not necessarily the problem, the central problem is white supremacy, and it is something that affects even white people. Because if you are not, okay, well, again, to the German, to the Nazis, if you didn't have blue eyes and white and weren't a certain kind of tone and blonde hair and all of that, you were not supreme. But let's take that even out into how, again, other folks who weren't of that then take on white supremacy to then to because these are tools not of white supremacy. Because with the Holocaust, they had the what they call the, the, the pink triangles, I believe, as well. Correct. Is when how they were to mark LG uh, queer, you know, queer folks or whatnot. And they were a part of the roundup, too. They were a part of the first roundup and they end up burning down one of the gender clinics, I believe, or uh you know, uh, getting rid of one of the gender clinics again. I'm speaking. I never even knew. I never even thought I'd know this much about all of this, but I've had to kind of get a fast education on it all to connect the dots. That the root of this is white supremacy. That's the root evil of this is white supremacy, and then you have people take up the tools of white supremacy. Because they see that it is a system that unfortunately over centuries has had results that benefit those who participate and align with that system. And so you have a rise in anti-Semitism. So you, we have a Houston, America, Israel, Palestine. We all have a problem. We, we, we have heard stories about the rise in anti-Semitism and seeing the stories in the rise in anti-Semitism. I think also at one point some months ago, we saw stories about the rise in Asian hate. And what I think me and so many black folks uh, who are looking at the situation are waiting on and sort we're waiting for everyone to connect the dots. Yeah, the dots. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, it's so, it's, it's so deeply ironic because yeah, the Jewish people were one of the greatest victims of white supremacy in Europe. Right. I mean, like we were one of the initial kind of others because for centuries and centuries in Europe, you know, Europe was not a very diverse place for many centuries. We were seen as more middle Eastern. We refused to convert to Christianity. We were seen as the other, the most other, the most different. And it was an apartheid system. In many parts of Europe, Jews were not able to own land. There was different laws for Jews than there were for Christians. And we basically, we suffered from white supremacy, but does um, that, let me as, ask you that. Does that word apartheid, does that word apartheid exist in the Jewish mindset before, before this conversation with, because just as you mentioned with uh, Germany or the Holocaust and things like that, and the apartheid aspect of that, 
is that a word that is you that has been used and it is used to describe that before we were talking about the sort of situation with uh, Israel and Palestine? Not exactly. I mean, so it, it's mostly used because it's it was obviously it was it was a, a a term coined by white South Africans called you know it's, it basically means separate or separateness in I think in Afrikaans, um, and so it's become kind of you know a useful term to describe any legal system in which people are separated by their race, in which there's different legal systems. Um, but so it's it's an it's a useful word, um, but again, Jim Crow was an apartheid system. Right. Mm-hmm. It was a system in which people had different legal rights. So we did, it was before apartheid was turned. I think. And I, I, I love that you just brought that up because because America loves to come up with cute terms yeah. and words for things like J- the Jim Crow. It sounds like a an era of fashion, you know, something. It yeah. just it sounds like something other than what it was, which is apartheid. But. Yeah, but yeah, so the word apartheid, I think, didn't come into being until the 40s. So before that, basically, but but now it's it's a helpful term to describe any system in the present or in the past that basically yeah, separated people by race in which you're a different legal system based on your race that you're born into. Um, but what's yeah, what's what's so sad kind of about, again, our own history is that we were the victims of white supremacy. But then we took on a lot of the notions and a lot of the ideas of white supremacy, even though, again, we Jews are considered white in some places, we're not considered white in some places, but we took a lot of the logic of white supremacy, of the idea of racial supremacy, and we applied it to Palestine. Um, Because a lot of the ideas of Zionism, the very basic ideas, are based on the idea that we are more important than the Palestinian people, that our rights in that land are more important than the rights of the Palestinian people. And that's what's so tragic. Even American Jewish people. That's another thing I learned from watching this is American Jewish people have more rights to the land yes. than, Palestinian. than Palestinians. Yep. Oh no, that's what's so crazy. You know, and that's why, you know, we talked about the Nakba earlier, you know, almost every Palestinian American that I know, their parents or grandparents were ethnically cleansed in 1948. And many of them are still around. I know Nakba survivors, mm-hmm. right? And so people who literally were born in homes in Palestine, they cannot return to their homes. But I can go right now Maybe not now because Israel right. doesn't like me that much probably now. But but right now, I as a Jewish person can go to Israel and get citizenship like that, right? That's a system of, of racial supremacy, right? I've never lived in that land, right? Again, we have a historical, a deep historical tie to that land, but it's not – I didn't live there. Where someone who literally lived there in 1947, who took out of their homes, they cannot return. And that's the great tragedy um, of the situation for the Palestinian people is that they have nothing to do with our oppression, um, but they have been oppressed in, in quite profound ways. And it's, it's, it's truly heartbreaking, especially as someone, again, who has been, you know, our people have been so oppressed for so long. And that's why so many American Jews are so heartbroken because we, we learn lessons about our own oppression and we eventually learn that we are now oppressing other people. And that's why it's, it's, that's why there's so many American Jews when I was speaking out to the point where you know, polling shows almost 40% of young Jews, Jews under 40, think Israel is committing the crime of apartheid. So there's wow. a massive number of American Jews who now are willing to look reality in the eyes. We care deeply about being Jewish. Again, we, many of us have Israeli friends or family members, but we see apartheid. We know what apartheid looks like. You can see it, you know, especially and you don't need to go there to see it. But when you go there, man, again, as you said, you can't unsee it. You know, I, I, I learned about the occupation and the Nakba for the first time when I was 18. Um, but I went there for the first time when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And man, when you go to the West Bank, again, you know, you see what, you know, apartheid South Africa looked like in the 70s and 80s. You see what colonization looks like in real time. And it is crazy. You know, I think one of the most anti-Semitic 
things ever is the conflation of Judaism of like a faith with a government will or a, a, a you know a, a, I um I, and folks know like this uh, podcast no opportunity wasted um is sort of contextualized within my Buddhist faith um our our I'm a, a member of an organization called the Soka Gakkai International it's a lay Buddhist organization and I say lay Buddhist organization because it has been around for a long time and it's been pretty radical uh and it's actually I am, I feel very blessed to have found this organization and community because of the radicalness of the faith. They we we stand firm in the fact that we are a lay Buddhist organization because we did have to separate at one point from uh the sort of priesthood because of this conflation uh that they were adamant about uh, sort of joining with military forces, using religion to bless uh, war, you know, action yep. and things like that, um, that are things that are very egregious when it comes to the spiritual world, especially yep. something like Buddhism. And so, you know, uh, our president who just passed away in November, uh, there's this quote he says, and he says, when a religion join hands with the authorities, it will ultimately find itself shackled controlled by the government and having lost its autonomy, such a religion will inevitably discard its original purpose to work for people's happiness and sell its souls to those in power. Yeah, religion is used for horrible things. Again, Buddhism is such a peaceful, amazing religion, but there have been people throughout history, both historically and in the, the present, who use Buddhism for violent means. All that seems so, religious so organizations exactly. have exactly. had to evolve past very yes. primitive ways of approaching spirituality. Yeah. No, and so again, you know, our film talks about a lot that there has been this conflation um, between basically support for Israel and our religion. And again, if you take a step back, you can realize how dangerous that is. Again, like, do people think that, you know, if you're Muslim, you need to support Saudi Arabia? That if, like, we, we can realize that that's ridiculous, right? We can realize that Saudi Arabia is a country, they have a government, and that that government is totally separate from the religion of Islam. But when it comes to Israel, partly because it's the only Jewish country, but also because we've invested so much into Israel, we've invested our identities into Israel, a lot of us want to believe that Israel and Judaism are the same thing. Judaism is a multiple thousands of year old religion. Israelism, Israel has been around for 75 years. And like many other countries, has done horrible things. Again, America has done very similar things to uh, Israel. America and Israel have very similar histories. Listen, there's a um, conversation that is happening and that is going to happen. And I think that I think that those who have been in power for so long are truly have not been prepared for the tide that has been turning, and it has been turning for a minute. And it has yep. been making its rounds around the world. I believe that the energy that we're seeing right now is the energy that we've seen with the UK and sort of now people having a different perspective on the monarchy, uh, on, on having a king or having a queen and thinking about the fact that you still have the heads of some of our kings on display in your museum. You still have stolen goods from countries uh, oh, yeah. on display. You, you, there's still a relationship that has not been atoned with some of these islands and things like that when it comes to colonization. And so I think there's a conversation uh, as well as imperialism in America and all of this where 
oh, they have tried to keep us so uninformed and uneducated with all of this. And so the more that we are informed, the more we are starting to want to move into a space of atonement, a space of acknowledging the history and the things that have happened. And I think that the powers that be know this, and that's why they're trying to fastly get rid of the history books. Totally. No, I mean, I always say, when people say, you know, why are you only criticizing Israel? I'm like, I'm not. I criticize America and Britain the exact same way. They've done, again, what America and Britain have done, very similar to what Israel has done, just on a much larger you know, scale. So it's like, I do criticize Israel, of course, but also I criticize those countries just the same. Like, you know, I can look, all I'm trying to do is just look honestly at what's happened in history, right? Mm-hmm. And in America, mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. do that and realize that we don't hate all Americans, right? I can talk honestly about the history of slavery, talk honestly about the history of ethnic cleansing of Native Americans. People don't think that I hate all Americans. Right. Whereas when I say the same things, when I look critically at Israeli history, people sometimes think that I hate all Israelis or even I hate all Jews when I'm Jewish. It's like all I'm trying to do is just be honest about the tragedies of our history. Um, and I can do that, right, just like I talk about the tragedies of American history too. Well, a lot of what you, a lot of what you, you know, sort of have on revealed with this as well as there was a, 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 there was a Instagram post that I posted that I, it's still going viral and it, and you will probably know the man's name more than I do. Uh, he, uh, he has a family that is Holocaust survivors and it's just like this clip that went viral of him sort of speaking to another, a Jewish woman who was basically using her tears um, as a weapon. Norman Finkelstein. Yes, absolutely. As a weapon in this moment. And I thought it was just such a powerful moment. And I, this is what I know about this moment and about what's going on right now. We can acknowledge the various atrocities that happen to various communities. Uh, But when we say never again, we have to mean that. For everyone. We have to mean that for everyone. And when we can identify and go back to the root of this with white supremacy, then I think this is a time right now that is not only showing um, Jewish folks, black people, folks who in the Sudan um, and the Congo, uh, you know, the folks in Uganda who are dealing with, you know, homophobic kill the gay laws and things like that or whatever. Um, what we're realizing is that we are stronger together. We, the way that I have seen people flood the streets across the world and I, I think that if we continue to do this at every intersection, but what you see, what I'm seeing right now, and it's not just Jewish people, it's not just black people, it's not just white women. What I am seeing is this outrage that happens when something hits their front door. But where was the outrage? When we're yeah. talking about the racist police brutality and the things that are ravaging these neighborhoods, where was the outrage when the Asian communities were being uh, violent? Like, meaning we have to keep the same energy for white supremacy because that is the culprit, not each other. This system of white supremacy, and 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 to think that, you know. Because a, a community of people went through such 
a horrific, brutal, ongoing slot of their people and just something that is unimaginable and devastating does not give them the right to then put that same energy on everybody else because I know that's why a lot of white people in America are stockpiling guns because I know they a lot of folks there's a lot of what they call thin-skinned racist white people who are scared that black people at some point are going to rise up and like put the same kind of violence and energy that we've experienced and that's why we are so many times pushed into the space of grace to always be pushed into forgiveness first to be pushed into a space of this this grace that is not given to us now because there was just so much to unpack in my conversation with Aaron and talking about their documentary Israelism, I just had to break this conversation into two parts. There's so much more we talked about. So tune in on Friday for part two of Israelism, Faith and Fallacy. But before we go, I want to drop just another Buddhist breadcrumb and discuss what exactly does chanting Nam Yo Ho Renge Kyo actually do? Simply put, Chanting brings out our inner Buddha nature, our Buddhahood, as we call it. And we just talked about this on Saturday at my local, um, my local district Buddhist discussion meeting and pointed out that there's a difference in what our days look like when we don't chant versus days when we are in perfect rhythm with our practice and we're chanting consistently, which for some of us looks like forgetting to chant at night or not chanting for days or even weeks at a time or chanting every single day. Each person's practice and journey looks different. The whole reason we chant is to activate our inner Buddha nature so that we can get that part of ourselves, the higher part of ourselves, the more wiser, more compassionate part to respond to life's opportunities and challenges. I don't want my lower self responding. And I'm gonna tell you right now, you don't want my lower self responding. So I want us all to stop responding from our lower selves. And trust me, I am including myself in this read too. Because, you know, catch me at the right time and it's on. Uh, so this week, I want us all to work on raising our life's vibrational frequency. And let's start responding from our Buddha nature. Start right now in the comment section this week. Before you leave that comment, chant Nam Yo Ho Ring and Kill three times and see if your Buddha nature don't give you a better response. Or maybe you gotta have a difficult conversation with someone this week. So before you do, chant Nam Yo Ho Renge Kyo three times, privately, quietly to yourself, or loudly alone, as if you're releasing all anxiety, knowing that your higher self is gonna know exactly how to respond. No opportunity wasted. Nam -yo -ho.